When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Jenny LSQ, and this is episode six of the LSQ podcast, featuring an interview with the awesomely talented Angel Olsen. If, like a lot of folks, you fell in love with Angel's music via her 2016 album, My Woman, her third studio LP and home to songs like Shut Up, Kiss Me, I hope you'll stick with me for a conversation where Angel and I talk about not just where she's headed next, but where she came from, musically speaking. Uh, And Angel is playing some shows coming up. She's at the Coachella Festival in April and has some headlining dates in the area in the week in between. So if that's geographically relevant to you, definitely try and get out to see her live. It really is an amazing thing to hear her voice in the room with you. Um, And so thanks to Angel for sitting for this conversation. Also, later on in this episode, you'll hear an excerpt from a 2003 interview I did with Avril Lavigne when Rolling Stone sent me to Tokyo to do a cover story on Avril right when she was having early hits like Complicated and Skater Boy. And you'll hear Avril talk a bit about her songwriting process in that clip. If you want to reach me with feedback or questions, I'm on Twitter at JennyLSQ. Let's get into it. Hi, Angel Olson. Hi. Welcome to my podcast. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for having me over to your uh, your temporary LA space. Yeah. Taking off the cardigan, man. It's going to get rough. No, I'm just no. kidding. <laughs> Take off the cardigan. It's okay. I sprayed enough stuff in the room. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> um, so glad to have a chance to talk to you like uh, at length, and I feel like the only interview type things we've done have been kind of you know weird festival you know in passing type things and um what i like to do is to be able to like really dig into how a person got into music in the first place i mean you know even before they knew they wanted to play it and and you know tease out some of the threads of that so that's you know where we'll start okay what do you remember about the first music you ever loved oh i mean i i loved music when i was a little kid and i i was definitely into like watching movies and re you know redoing the scenes of movies as a kid and then yeah I don't know I just I just grew up listening to a lot of different things my parents are um 76 and 85 so there's a huge age gap so right whatever list whatever they were listening to I sort of dove into they listened to a lot of like old 50s songs so that was sort of what I would listen to growing up and then I got into piano and Right, and so were they? Would they play records off and around the house? Not really. They weren't very musical. Um, I think a lot of my interest in playing music and digging up, um, like they would, they would listen to it occasionally, but um, they weren't really artistic or musical people. But 
I think what I what I did was I just sort of romanticized what they might have been like at my age, mm-hmm. and went through family photographs and stuff, and um, would find old photos of them uh, with their you know with their kids uh, in the sixties and seventies, and just sort of try to imagine what they're what they'd be listening to and kind of discovered music that way you right know, through, and, through nostalgia and did you would you ask them much about that kind of thing yeah all yeah, the time yeah, yeah. and did you because they're your they were your initially your foster parents who right. were your parents and so you mentioned their kids did, were, were their children from back when they were younger a part of your life growing up some of them were yeah but yeah. they were more like uh, uncles and aunts like they, they had kids my age so they would sort of take me on family trips and stuff when my parents couldn't. Right. So I had different examples of parents, you know, or model, like role models, I guess. But um, they were out of the house. My brother Chris, who was also adopted, was in the house. So we could share that. Right. Like being the uh, the aliens of the family, we could share that together. And he listened to a lot of hip-hop and R&B and stuff. So there was a little bit of that at some point. I was really into, like... Mariah Carey and Boys to Men and you know I went through those phases but it wasn't until I was like 16 or 17 yeah I like to tell the story because it's like freshman year private school cheerleader for a very small might as well be um homeschool size classrooms because it was 25 people to a class oh wow so i was a cheerleader for a basketball team at this very small private school non-denominational private school and then that year i think i got pneumonia and i kind of like lost a lot of weight and they wanted to throw me up in the air and i was like fuck, <laughs> fuck that i can't do that and i'm not going up there you You're know like, i'll throw up in the air yeah so i quit and i joined like a ska punk band called good fight um and I would go to these, like, shows all the time. There was this place called the Creepy Crawl, which I don't think exists in St. Louis anymore, but it was pretty gross. Like, it was a pretty gross place to go. But, yeah. Um, so I got connected with all these kids, and then there was this music scene website called STL Punk, which is, like, a, it was, like, a functioning, or a St. Louis version of Facebook before Facebook had exploded. Okay. Um, and you could find out where bands were playing, if they were playing house shows, where the locations were, and everybody had a profile, so you could see, like, who was in what band, and so it was, like, this early network, and we would find shows, me and my friends from school, so within a year, I was, like, ex-punk, I mean, uh, ex-cheerleader, now I, like, (laughs) wanted to dye my hair, and, like, you know, go through all this stuff, and I was singing in this band trying to be, like, you know, kind of like Gwen Stefani meets, I don't know, right. Slime or something with like punk. Some and had punk you started stuff. playing an instrument yet at that point? No, I was, I was playing piano, like going to lessons. I think I probably quit around then. And then I started playing guitar and that's when I discovered, like, that's when I discovered independent music and, um, listened to a lot of Stereolab and Broadcast and Mount Erie and mm-hmm. um, Yola Tango. And then, and then that's when things sort of opened up and I realized there was old music, which I always loved, but there was this other kind of music out there that was lyric-driven and really right. strange, and I wanted to explore that. So um, playing guitar, writing my first songs, probably around 16 or 17. Right. And I, I eventually... I don't know, I think I was just, like, going in a different direction than the band, and I remember playing a show, 
at the High Watt, or it was some place, the High Dive or Hi Fi in St. Louis. And at the end of the show, I remember like going out back and we're loading. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. It was like super dramatic <laughs> for like 17 year old. Like, I just can't do this anymore. I've been writing different music. You know? Did you manage to record any stuff with that, with that first band? I mean, I have a CD somewhere, <laughs> yeah. but I, it's probably all scratched up. I, I don't know. I don't remember what the songs were about. Like, yeah, totally. I just remember it was really fun because all I had to do was write the songs and I like would dance around on stage and jump around. Very different time in my writing life. Um, but what was the primary vehicle for di- for digging into, you know, as you say, broadcast and stereo lab and all that sort of stuff? Once you, once that door got kind of open for you, was it just the internet or, you know? It was like a mix of the internet, but also like going to these shows, I would meet older kids and older people and they would introduce me to, they'd right. make mixtapes for me. Right. Uh, or mix CDs or whatever. Yeah. You know, and so I would discover stuff. And I didn't really, like, I remember downloading music and stuff, but it was such a weird, it it wasn't like this known thing to just use the internet to find music at the time. Yeah. MySpace was existing. Yeah, and just, it's like, it is funny even in how long the internet era has been at this point how there was still a huge portion of it where you couldn't it didn't really feel like you could just search for anything and even if you could have you didn't really know how or it's like you know you just didn't think to yeah it wasn't a resource like that yet at the i you know i I consider myself like on the edge of millennials because i i grew up where you had to keep your plans you know i had a i my parents didn't didn't give me a, a cell phone until way later so like They'd give me a pager and drop me off at the Creepy Crawl. I mean, this place, like, if you drove your car there, you, you, your car was broken into, all your stuff was stolen almost every night. So, and, so, it, you know, we would go to these places or go to the Lemp Arts Center um, to see, like, a noise show, and I'd just try so hard to understand noise rock, and I'd just be like, one day, it'll click. And all of this will mean so much more than it does right now. But it doesn't. That never clicked for me. So, but yeah, it was a very big scene in St. Louis, like noise and just like these weird. I just like being around the people and being yeah. like, they, they, these kids are like my age. Are they, is there some sort of intellectual thing I'm not picking up on that like this delivers that I don't understand? But there was a lot of that, like just like meeting people through that scene. And, right. But then um, you're saying that once you kind of figured out that there is a certain. Uh, lyric-driven melodicism thing. Yeah. That, that was just, that that's what you love. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I what think was, I what, probably... what was the first kind of thing that you, artist that was previously unknown to you, that, I mean, that you delved to? Obviously, like, Mazzy Star, you know, okay. huge influence. Right. Um, without a doubt, I, I could not deny that influence. But, um, yeah, Mazzy Star, I think, for a while, yeah, it was just, like, Mazzy Star broadcast... And like Bell and Sebastian, I feel like I listened to a lot of Bell and Sebastian. And then I had a friend who introduced me to like Bruce Springsteen and right. older music. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, to. you know, because I feel like the earliest, your earliest recordings, just you know, as Angel Olsen, the the kind of electronicness or the the beat drivenness of like a stereo lab and a broadcast and that sort of thing. You know, it's not like even Mazzy Star. Like, I don't listen to your music and think yeah. like, obviously, this is influenced oh, by Mazzy Star like, I mean, at all. 
<laughs> if I did a cover of a Mazzy Star song, I would be like, I'm an asshole. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. It would just It would just be, like, too close for me. But I also... Yeah, I think it's just more that I I I just know it. It's someone who's influenced me, so I couldn't I couldn't do that. Now, as at this point, like with the first band or when you started uh, playing guitar and, and trying to write a different kind of song, did you see yourself as doing this? You know, as this being something that would be your life, it would become your life. Um, I didn't really know. I I just I didn't want I didn't want to um I didn't want to do anything else but I didn't really know if it's what I wanted to do. I think I was a little bit embarrassed because, um, yeah, I just didn't, I didn't want to um, go to school like everybody else. I just wanted to play music. But eventually, I started writing songs, and I think I might have played one show at the Lemp Arts Center and realized that, like, I don't think I could, I don't think I was, like, welcomed in the, the brotherhood of noise by playing these kinds of songs but I, I ended up playing like some house shows and meeting some friends some people from Chicago who were encouraging me to just get out of St. Louis for a couple shows and play there and and see how it goes like so I went up there for New Year's and played a show there and it was awesome and I kept visiting and then eventually moved there um, when I finished school and then pretty much did, I did I had like a group a group of friends like maybe three or four friends there but I, I felt bad like very needy towards them at first you know I had just moved there and I didn't really know anyone so I and then you know you meet some people who you know you you're not meant to be friends with but they're just people that are there until you find your people yeah you're like what are you doing tonight and then you're like <sighs> secretly dreading it but you're yeah, like no because you're like we got because you're a moron, I would never hang out with you, but, like... <laughs> you want to go see a show? Yeah. <laughs> but eventually, I started playing these house shows in Chicago, and I'm, st- I'm still really close with a lot of people that would put on those shows, one of them being at this place called The Sack House, and another um, place they lived was called Ottoman Empire. Mm. And we just... I, I started to get to know the music scene through these people put and is that how you kind of encountered will oldham bonnie prince billy eventually so we'll speed up um yeah so many years down the line the same friends the same group of friends that invited me or invited me for a show in chicago um we're doing we're putting on a house show where it was like a film showing and a couple of other performances but you know like just like your average small kind of quieter house experience not not like a, a loud thing right um and i was there and i met um a few different musicians and one of them being emmett kelly who wrote me about um my songs and i didn't hear from him for like six months and then eventually will wrote me to say that he was interested in me singing for this um uh, cover band called The Babblers, which was going to cover Kevin Coyne and Dagmar Krauss's record Babel. And I thought I was just on for one tour. So I learned all these songs. Wow, I don't even know what that is. I know, it's crazy. Well, Kevin Coyne and Dagmar Krauss are these German performers. Um, uh, there's this band called Slap Happy that I really love that Dagmar Krauss was in. And then I think Kevin Coyne was in a different group anyway they did stuff together 
real weird, but Will was a huge fan of Kevin Coyden and his paintings and his work. So I think he just wanted to do something just to celebrate his, his music. And so I just thought, oh, I'm, I'm going to learn like a few Will Oldham songs and then learn these covers and then I'll be, I'll be back at the cafe and playing DIY shows in Chicago. So, so, um, yeah, I don't know. It ended up lasting about two and a half years. Oh, damn. Yeah. Like off and on. But that must've been just really good for you to, at that point, after having done your own thing for a minute already to see kind of get it on the road and just be like, okay, this is what it would be like. Yeah. Without, yeah, I didn't have an audience at the time or maybe I did, but I just didn't. I didn't really tour, so it was like going from not touring as a 23-year-old lady with a band of all dudes who've been touring for life, who are sometimes kind of jaded, you know, sometimes really excited. Uh, It was such an eye-opening experience about the music industry and how booking agents worked and press and all this stuff, and I just got to kind of like sit in the background and watch it and, and, you know... um, I remember thinking sometimes, like, we're in Italy. Why is everyone so upset, you know? <laughs> but, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and the tables have turned a lot since then. I've been in that position where I'm in charge of everyone's livelihood and I have to wear many hats. Pe- these people are my friends, but they're also, like, my business partners. And um, you just feel a lot of different conflicting things when you're balancing all of that. And so yeah. maybe you're in Italy and maybe you're having the best meal of your life, but it's not, it's not just quite so simple anymore. Right. So yeah, at the time I think it was kind of a prep for things to come, but I didn't know yet if that was going to, ha- you know, I had no idea what was about to happen in my life. And I came out with strange cacti on, on uh, tape, uh, this, this, uh, noise label actually sort of atmospheric and noise driven label called Pathetic Records um, reached out and wanted to put out my songs and he said I'll just, I'll just do like a small tape of six or seven songs and so I released that while I was touring with Will and it, it got some you know some attention, but I didn't really think anything of it. I didn't know how anything in the music industry worked. I was just making songs. Right. And and I had this totally weird idea of how everything worked. So after touring with Will for a while, I did like a short run. I played Kim's video in New York and like five other shows in New York. And it was awesome. It was really fun. But I didn't feel the need yet to get out there and tour for my own music my own music and I had a good gig working for someone else who actually made money (laughs) you know so I wasn't going to give that up yet um I wasn't like I think I was just trying to take it easy and not expect it to last forever but to enjoy it while it was there and I um when I came to recording Halfway Home I decided that I needed to do some small tours. I had a booking agent in Europe reach out who wanted to book me a, sh- a short stint, and I said, I don't really drive, so if you could make it all train, like just trains. Um, so I did this small stint, and then I did a small solo stint um, that spring or fall in the US, and it was like as soon as I got home to Chicago, it was like three booking agents 
um, several record labels, like managers, you know, everybody was just like, oh, you're touring now. And there was this, you know, what I realized in those short stints was that there was this audience waiting for me to perform. And I, I didn't have to work hard to, like... Beg and plead. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I feel really, really lucky that I didn't have to try that hard, that it was just there. But um, it was kind of overwhelming because it was just like, oh, everybody at once came out of the woodwork to say, oh, we want to work with you suddenly because you're showing that you're on tour and working for your music. But um, my PR agent, uh, Jessica Linker, was one of the first people that picked up the record before I had a manager or a label or anything. And um, yeah, it was kind of through trusting people that Will had worked with, like Billions, working with similar companies that I was already familiar with. Um, Jag had reached out to me two years before I released Halfway Home to say they were interested and I just wasn't ready. So I wrote them to just be like, hey, I'm ready now. If you're still interested in my music. <laughs> I have They're a like, lot. sweet. Yeah, so I sort of made these connections with people I already trusted. Pathetic, who put out my tape, moved to Asheville. I went there to record Burn Your Fire. It was just this small yeah. group of people that I, I was already familiar with. Right. And then... Um, my manager at the time was like best friends with John from Pathetic, so right. Yeah. And was was the music because it, it's interesting, you know, the strange cacti stuff. You know, it reminds me. If it reminds me of anything, it reminds me of Will Oldham's music. You know what I mean? Yeah, like uh, the, the demo that, stuff, that early Palace music stuff, Palace Brothers stuff, where it's just like spooky, like voice and guitar kind of mm-hmm. vibe. And I wonder, was there a period where you, of exploration for you with that kind of truly old-timey music, older than even what your parents had been listening to? Oh yeah. Or was that just your execution of? Did it just sort? Did that just sort of come out by accident in your execution of kind of classic songwriting? I mean, I listened to a lot of Fairport Convention, and I got into like I I through the it was like Fairport Convention to broadcast like right. you know it's hard for me to remember exactly what I was listening to I'm sure I listened to Leonard Cohen right like, Nick Drake and shit yeah that. yeah yeah um, did you have specific I mean did you have specific ideas you know as you were getting more confident in your in your early songwriting about what kind of songs you wanted to be writing what kind of sounds you wanted to be making there was a period of time that I. I was always really interested in the 30s. Like, I studied um, female surrealism in the 30s. And so I, I and in Ooh, some rom- female surrealism I know, in the 30s. I know. Is, some, like, funny. romanticized way of thinking about that time. I started listening to a lot of Mildred Bailey and a lot of, like, 30s style music. And um, I still feel like I, I am inspired by that time. But, yeah, I think, I think, um, as far as lyrics, like I've always been inspired by a mix of different things, like power pop um, stuff that sounds kind of 30s, stuff that's just like uh, sort of your classic, like Neil Young style song, you know? Yeah. Um, but also, I uh, really like the sound of demos. I think they're really intimate, and sometimes you don't need a lot. It's, it's a lot more to, to hear something in its rawest form. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I get attached to demos. Like, sometimes when I listen to a demo and I'm in the process of working on other things, I can't decide which demo I should 
continue like if I go into a studio I have two demos and one's in a different key it takes me a while to figure out which one I'm gonna use yeah because I think the demos are perfect and I, I need to like let go of the perf like the the nature of the demo and and do something else with the record but um I think and I suppose that's where collaborate collaboration comes in hand you yeah get like a fresh yeah fresh pair of ears on it who would you say like has been the most you know person whose opinions and feedback on your songs has had the most significant impact on hmm. on how they turn out well I don't really I'm I'm sort of I'm sort of a wuss about criticism <laughs> but here's how I do it so I send it to a group of friends usually five or six friends that I trust who understands like I don't really want them to say what they want me to change about it necessarily, if they like it or love it. But if I send it to them before they even say anything, and 24 hours later, if I'm feeling embarrassed, that usually means I still have to work on it. And so I'll end up writing them and be like, I'm, I'm so embarrassed, I need to finish this. But like, And are they people who play me as in? Some of them are writers. Like, my, my friend Matt is a um, a poet and a writer, and he and I just like get together and um, talk about what we're reading. And you know, he's someone I feel like I can trust with that sort of thing. But yeah, there's a select group of people where I will send stuff that I'm excited about too. Um, but as far as really searching for critique, I feel like. I guess I don't even mean critique. I just mean, like, the idea you wouldn't have thought of that is, like, a good enough idea that you mm. incorporate it into what you do next. Hmm. That's a good question. I feel like I collaborate most with my band in that way, especially, like, my drummer. Um, I don't know. Some of the song structures probably wouldn't, especially on the newer material, wouldn't be the way that they are without his input because right. it changes the vibe of the song so much, you know? Right. Um, and before I had this band, I would write stuff that was very lyric-driven and zero space for guitar solos. And over time, just being with these people, it's sort of opened up my mind as far as writing something. When I write it now, I leave those spaces and think about those ideas and sometimes write those parts. Right. Um, it's been a thing, like a sort of a challenge to take old material from... Strange Cacti or other other early records and trying to apply those rules to them, the song structures aren't there. They're not written for a band, so you have to kind of recreate them. Um, and, so, you know, I haven't really been wanting to do that with the band on some songs, so that's why I'm going to be doing a lot of solo, solo shows this year, just to kind of revisit that material. But it's interesting to see how much just keeping in mind the band, keeping in mind how that will affect and change the songs has sort of changed my writing. Right. And yeah. I would imagine, too, even just now that, you know, as opposed to the Bonnie Prince Billy experience, like now that you're at Panorama Festival in a weird tent with a weird midday audience, yeah. that you, you know, to like figure out the things that are not immediately apparent that have to be in the mix of the songs you're making because yeah. you want to feel good in every environment in which you might play yeah. your song or something. Yeah. When did you kind of find your voice as a singer? I mean, did you sing as a little kid or? Um, I feel like uh, my voice has changed a lot over the years. I've definitely used a lot of different affectations. Um, but... I feel like the last 
few records have really opened up my mind on what I can do with my voice. But when I first started singing, I listened to a lot of English folk, and you can kind of hear that, I feel. I put out this record called Phases this year, and it's a collection of different periods of time in my work. And some of the songs I put on there, um, I would be embarrassed. Like, listening to them in this room, if we were listening to them, I just sort of grit my teeth because of the way that I was singing back then, how uncomfortable I was with myself, like, sort of like reading a diary, but, you know, it's a, it's not like, um, this, it's not because the songs were personal and I feel embarrassed. It's more like what I was doing or trying at the time I thought was really interesting. And now I feel it's very transparent. It's funny how I feel like if one, and maybe this is just me, but I feel like if you look at older photos of yourself, there's a sense of relief because you think that you've been too hard on yourself in the moment about how, how you looked, you know, that mm-hmm. in retrospect, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah cool. Yeah, all right. That's all right. Yeah. But if you, like, read your words or look at back at something you worked on that's, like, mm-hmm. a thing you care about, you can't help but be embarrassed because you can see how much you've improved yeah. from then or and something I, like I that. And I feel like some of the writing, like, some of the stuff I was talking about, I was like, I was 23 years old. What was I, what could I have been going through that was really like inspiring me to write this song? There's something so, pure in that, so, though, obviously. There's but something. here's the thing like, people, you, you revisit your old work and it's almost like you're listening to a stranger because you've changed so much sometimes since that period. So, you know, I don't remember what the songs were about necessarily, but I remember like trying that thing with my voice that I find to be annoying now, you know? But I, I've, I found it interesting because if I hadn't gone through that period of time, I wouldn't have found what I like and what I hate. And, yeah, you know, I'm sure in five years I'll look back at a record that I did, I, you know, my woman or a previous record and be like, this sucks. Maybe. It's one of the things you got to admire about uh, good old Robert Zimmerman. Um, (laughs) And the fact that he made Nashville Skyline just decided to sound like Kermit the Frog for Mm -hmm. an album and just like, let's, Let's just, I'm already famous, let me just sing in a yeah. weird falsetto. Yeah, I mean, you want to try new things. You gotta. Um, I feel like, yeah, I don't know when I exactly found But you, you're a technically gifted singer. I mean, you have a, you, a good tone and good yeah. pitch and that kind of thing, you know, that just... I'm pretty good. Must have been a, so yeah. <laughs> I decided to do it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. But you weren't, like, singing in the chorus or something, like, as a little kid. I mean, I was, but I always just thought the old ladies that came up to me at church or wherever were just being nice, you Right. Know? And then eventually, um, playing these house shows, it was really inspiring because... It was the first time I got that kind of attention and people would come up after the show and like, you know, ask me if I had any CDs and I'd be like, I don't know. I don't have any CDs, you know. (laughs) So I started making mixed CDs for people and giving them away. um, It sounds like sort of, you know, and obviously you're still, you know, only a few albums into your career. It's not mm -hmm. like you're an old pro or (laughs) or anything but it sounds like you have a pretty kind of chill approach to things where you're just like you're not putting a lot a ton of pressure on yourself or you're just which is awesome because artists can freak themselves the fuck out or whatever um but i wonder if you know in more recent years did you sort of 
zoom out and say like I I want to I want to I I do really really care about this I do really really want to do this. I think for this record, it was sort of like that because I for Burn Your Fire I I um, it was my first big record that where I was touring all over the world and I was doing well and I was starting to see why sometimes you have a nice dinner in Italy and it's a it's not a nice dinner you know that sort of <laughs> yeah, thing yeah, yeah. because you're doing like so much press because you want to be important because you want the record to do well because you want to support your friends who are playing with you and um then you see a photo of yourself and you're like why did they think that was a good photo like <laughs> i have three chins <laughs> you know like and, yeah. and you, you you're like reading reviews and you're like that's not what i said they oh, and they left out this other part that i was t- i was talking for hours about this book that i love and they totally left that out you know yeah. and you start overthinking it and then I kind of pulled away from that, and I was like, "Fuck this! I'm not, I'm not reading reviews, and I don't want to look at pictures. I, I'm gonna stay off the internet, unless it has to do with Instagram and sometimes Twitter, you know. Like, and even now, I'm like, that sometimes is a little too much because people get addicted to looking at their phones. So, but when when I first was doing well, I would like check in and read all the things, and you know, try to figure out what people thought of what I was doing because it was just so weird um I just didn't find it to be very helpful for my um for me to stay on course and to think about my writing but I mean are you in a at at a place now where you you are sort of strategizing for you know a longer farther down the road than you might have to answer your question your question coming back and doing this record I decided I wanted to do a lot of things very differently than I had. And I wanted to be the editor. Like, you know, I wanted to be the editor of everything because then I could have, then I felt like if something went wrong, at least I was the one who messed it up, you know? (laughs) Um, But yeah, I just wanted to have that kind of approach to everything, making the record, mixing the record, doing all of the image stuff, all the press, everything, like, in relation to it. I wanted to kind of go out of the way to let people know that I was putting my stamp on everything, you know, making videos and and all of that. Um, And to have fun with it, the aesthetic. Like, one of my close friends is a tailor, and... Though I love the scrappy old version of the band, and I love the grungy, scrappy vibe, this record was a different kind of message, and I, if I was going to have that message, I just wanted to have a little bit more aesthetic fun without losing the integrity of what I put in the, into the music. So I got like the band these, these baby blue suits with bolo ties. Well, the bolo ties were their idea, but um, my, my friend who was a tailor was like, I'll make these dresses for you. And so we started working on these dresses, and I got really into the aesthetic, Mm -hmm. the whole piece of performing something. Right. Which is so important. I didn't want to get lost in it. You know, I find that that can be annoying sometimes. Artists get bigger, and they get lost in the dancers or the light show or, like, all these things that kind of... They can help the music, especially if it starts to suck. Right. (laughs) But I don't want to get lost in it. I just wanted to have something that looked really classic. Yeah. You know? I mean, it looked and great, the shows that 
that I saw. I mean, plus the silver wig is a nice touch oh, yeah. uh, at the end of the set. But I also feel like, you know, again, considering that we've hung out a little bit before this interview, you're a funny person. You've got a good sense of humor. You think I'm you're, funny. Yeah. <laughs> You are a funny person. And I feel like, you know, I mean, obviously a song like Shut Up, Kiss Me is funny. Yeah. Um, but this, you know, my woman does seem like it, there's more of like that aspect of your personality coming through. And then watching the first time I ever saw you play a headlining show was just at that show in New York at fucking in oh, East in, Williamsburg. Um, uh, oh, recently. Uh, yeah, Brooklyn um, Steel, right. Brooklyn Steel. That was the first headlining show I'd seen you play ever. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, she's fucking hilarious. Like, that even just fun. when you're just, like, not saying much, it's it's funny. Um, <laughs> so I can see why you would want to, like, to have this kind of subtle, yeah. like, some humor in, in the larger presentation of it. I wanted, the sense, I wanted to add a sense of humor back to my work because I felt like people were starting to... I didn't mind so much the genres that people were putting me into. I just didn't want to have the reputation that people couldn't have a good time, that only sad breakup people could come to my show. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. I was like, no, it's bigger than that, you guys. <laughs> like, you don't have to be going through a breakup. I promise. <laughs> It'll be fun. But, you know, like... I also, obviously, I write songs that are like that, and I have accepted that about my career, but I also, yeah, I just wanted to have fun. And um, I, it was so hard for me to figure out what to wear on stage. Eventually, like, looking at all these photos, I was like, I have, like, such a weirdly shaped body. I'm petite, but I'm, you know, I'm a woman, you know? I'm not like the rest of those skinny bitches out there who are playing rock and roll with, like, no bra on. <laughs> Like, I wish, yeah. but, I mean, maybe I could, but that would be a different story and a different, a different my woman, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I just, so I had this woman, um, uh, Bailey Rayner, design these clothes for me, and, and it really made me feel comfortable. Yeah, power clothes. Yeah, yeah. It made me feel sexy and good about my body for not being, like, the typical, like, tiny model woman who's in a successful band like I I was like I'm looking at all these girls and I'm like they're doing great you know they're eating nothing but I love food and I'm gonna dance around on this stage so like give me a dress that I can wear to do both those things yeah um, or the the one piece yeah oh my god so that suit. was that was suit. like I came out with a video with a wig on and people got the wrong idea I feel like and they were like are you changing are you adding a persona to your set like what is it going to be like and I felt kind of turned off by that because I just thought people missed the point and then by the end of this last tour I decided that I really like the wig I you know I don't know if it's appropriate for all the songs that I sing and so we decided to do this spacesuit and then add the wig as sort of like a cherry on top at the yeah. end of this really long tour. So it was a, a nice thing to finally accept the personas that um, you kind of put off for a while. So, yeah. yeah. And then and then doing that uh, five years Bowie cover. Oh, man. Did we do it cherry that on, night? Cherry on top, yeah. Oh, man. So hard. <laughs> so good, though. It was so hard. Because sometimes you're so tired by the end of the set, and then all of a sudden you got to do five years. Oh, my God. You know? Smiling and waving and yeah. looking so far. Yes. Yeah. And is, but was, is, was, has Bowie been a long-time kind of favorite of yours? I feel like the Bowie pick was a few reasons. Um, 
just do, I wanted to do a Bowie cover, but I didn't know which one I wanted to do, and that song had always been um, really like, like one of my favorites. And when we recorded this record, he had just passed away, and there was um, a roller skate night at the Glendale Roller Rink while we were in town, so we all got tickets and went. And I thought, around then I thought of the videos, and I was thinking of sort of glam, doing like a glam rock video that was taking place in a roller rink. So I was thinking of that in relation to Bowie, and then with the wig, just the, the idea of persona and also being yourself while having the persona, um, and sort of celebrating that you can do both as a human, as a performer. Yeah. Um, I, I just really... Um, I felt like he did that really well. And so when we made the space suit, I was like, well, we got to do a Bowie song. Yeah. If I'm going to wear a space suit, you know, we got to do a Bowie song. But we, we would alternate between that and I found a reason. And sometimes we'd do both. Um, but I also find that having a cover song, especially at the when you've been touring for a long time, can kind of bring everybody together. And I wanted the band to sing more. Um, I don't know. It just, it makes it a little bit more relaxed when it's not just my song that we're singing. So. And now you've mentioned that, you know, you've got Coachella coming up, obviously, and you're going to do some solo performances. But, I mean, what, 2018 in the larger sense, it, it, are you going to give yourself some time off later in the year? What, what kind of stuff are you looking forward to doing just between now and when you feel enough of the urge to go back into the studio again to, to start doing that? Yeah, it's so hard for me to imagine what the studio even looks like, the next one that I'm going to go into. Yeah. I've never been a person who works with the same producer twice, um, but I'm curious. Yeah, I'm curious what it would be like. I think we all kind of need a break. Yeah. Um, and I'm just going to see what playing the solo material um, is like and, and what I sort of, through revisiting that, what I what is on my mind and, and how 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 will I approach the next thing that I'm doing? Because I have been writing, I've been writing um, sort of as an exercise. Um, I've been writing about a fake band, um, <laughs> and I have this idea to write songs for the fake band and everything. But yeah. I I don't know what to do with it. It, j- it could just be an exercise, and then I just want to get into the practice of writing in general, not necessarily um, music. So there could be yeah. something later in life that I, where I do something with that. But at the moment, I'm just trying to chill because there's just a lot of reflection that needs to be done about what just happened. And yeah. I mean, I had like three weeks off and I was telling Christian, um, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Like already I'm feeling idle. I need to do something, you know. Yeah, but, but that's, you have to give your, I mean, I think artists especially um, have to let yourself get bored sometimes. You can't just yeah. give in to the urge to be like, I should start on the next thing because it's the, it's the, you know, the moments when you let yourself live again that like, you yeah. know, space that's is clear for the, the idea. I mean, I've been learning how to write while on tour and to continue to do that um, and to take what I can from those experiences, but... I don't want to write about being on tour, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to write about other things. So 
Um, but it must be exciting just to know that you, you know, that it's now reached a level where it, it's exciting because people are going to be stoked, whatever the next thing is. They're, yeah. You know, well, they're there. It's it's weird. I don't, I don't ever really think about it like, I did all this stuff. It's like a package in space. Like, it's all... I did it, you know. I I I always kind of feel like there's something I have to like. There's more work to be done, and I I could do it differently and better the next time, you know. Um, what are some contemporary, recent artists, peers of yours who you find genuinely inspiring? Just in general. Yeah, yeah, where you're just like where you're just like that person's kicking ass and it makes me have faith that you can do good work in the world and uh, I mean and they won't beat you down. <laughs> <laughs> I mean musicians or just yeah, anyone. Yeah. Musicians, yeah. creative people. Um you know, a lot of people that I feel inspired by are my friends, like Kevin Morby, I don't know. Um I feel like it's it's also just really good to be able to have these conversations with people who are just as isolated and celebrated at once mm-hmm. with you because you can kind of talk about how weird it is sometimes without feeling like you're being an asshole or complaining or uh you know you're yeah, I don't know. When I first started doing well and, and getting into this world, I, I was like feeling super weird and alone about some stuff. And so I found myself reaching out to like David Bazan or like um, mm-hmm. Phil from Mount Erie, actually, mm-hmm. and just like just people and diff- who were older than me and had been doing it longer, and maybe not at the same um, in the same world as me, but like who had been doing it for years, to sort of be like, what is it like? Like, yeah. what is it like being a dad and coming home and like, how do you have kids one day and like, yeah. do when you go home like do you just jump into dad mode? Like, and I still have those questions yeah. for people, you yeah. know? Um, I think everybody, everybody always says that they feel very weird when they get home from tour. Yeah. I mean, it seems to be a thing. Somebody said they took, they had like 20, they had like a 24 hour roll where they got like a place before, like at the end of tour, not home, not but home. Like- <laughs> and so I started to come up with my own role. I was like, 24 hours, maybe 48 hours of just me time because I would just, you know, I'd get home and, you know, someone would have planned a date for me at like a baseball game and I'm just like, just got back from Europe, do not care about baseball. Like, you know, you're not in the mode to like be appreciative of that. Yeah, yeah. I think you just need a minute. But there must be some fun non-work stuff that you're going to try and do. Are you going to do? Are you going to travel at all? Oh, do you have yeah. any like sweet vacation plans? Or well, I'm coming here a lot to see friends, and so that'll be fun. You still don't drive though. I drive. Oh, you drive? Oh, yeah, okay. you I do. do. Drive now I was going to ask. Um, I moved from Chicago to Asheville about four years ago, and started driving again when I moved there. Um, so you'll be back and forth a bit between here and Asheville. I and, think so. Yeah. I'd like to like do collaborations with friends out here, mm-hmm. film, or, you know, just hang out with people and make stuff that I care about. One of my close friends here, if you, I was mentioning her earlier, Juliana Barwick, has been, like, a bigger sister to me about, like, this last year was just kind of, there were some things that were a little hellish happening, and she was 
really supportive and just a, a good person to to be around, you know. Um, I think that's all I've got for you, Angel. Cool. Thanks Thank for making the time. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah. Well, maybe just go ahead and bookmark angelolson.com. This way it's easy to stay in the loop about her plans for later this year and beyond. And up next on LSQ, it's that Avril Lavigne interview clip I've been telling you about. Basically, in early 2003, Rolling Stone sent me to Tokyo to report a cover story on Avril. Several months after her debut album had come out and was already an international success, it was fascinating to spend a couple of days with Avril just watching, you know, the people of Tokyo respond to her. She was a huge star there at the time. And talking to Avril about, you know, her early efforts as a songwriter, about uh, what she found to be the struggles in collaborating with producers who she thought didn't take her opinions seriously enough. It's interesting, as soon as I listened to this clip again, I remembered this moment in the interview, the moment, as you'll hear, when Avril snaps her fingers to indicate how easy she finds it to write a song. And something about it seemed defensive to me at the time. So a few days later, when I went to Los Angeles to interview some of the producers Avril had collaborated with on songs for that album, I asked them about you know, her role in the songwriting process, and their stories differed from the way Avril described it. So it was always an unanswered question for me uh, regarding that album and, and from that cover story. In years since, I've developed a different attitude about it, because who really cares how much of the songwriting Avril did? She was obviously already off to a great start as an artist, especially in the pop realm, where she broke from a cookie-cutter mold that, you know, had been established not that long before by people like Britney Spears, God bless her, but it was great to have someone who was irreverent in the way Avril was, and I don't think I adequately appreciated it at the time. So with that in mind, let's listen to this Avril excerpt, starting where I'm basically asking her about some time she spent working with various collaborators before the album was finished. Everyone kind of had the idea that I was going to be like, there's a pop trip, but really nice ballad songs and very reserved. And I was like, uh-uh. A lot of people I got sent to, they wouldn't put, like, electric guitars and they wouldn't rock out. When I'd be like, come on, let's make this edgier. They, like, they wouldn't get it. And they would, they would like, listen to the label over me. And that was so hard for the longest time. Like, that was, like, the most depressing thing I ever went through in my life. Because how long a period of time did this stretch out over? Um... A year? A bit over a year. Right. So how when you went into when you first went into working with Peter, so by the time you were like really like like recording the songs that ended up on the record, like what what was the main thing that changed for you as a songwriter? Like what did you have to learn about writing songs from when you first started? Because I'm sure you, as you say your songwriting must have gotten a lot better. I learned the format. I mean pop format, I guess. I learned, you know, that I don't like little artificial drum beats. I just learned stuff about sound. Just like, just being in that environment 24-7 for that long, I just started learning that, you know, I have to stand there in front of that person and speak up and tell them what I want. They're going to do exactly what they want when they're sitting there at that board. In order for me to do that, I'll do that. But not everyone's going to listen to me. I'll do that until someone listens to me. Yeah. And I did that until people listened to me. And that's what it took. The main thing is, you got to work with the artist. A lot of people wouldn't listen to me, but when people finally did, 
their shit ended up on the record. But, so, so, how many songs did you record? I mean, was was it more songs that made it onto the record? Did you record more? Did was it? I have other stuff. A couple. Stuff, What's gonna is that stuff ever gonna come out somewhere? No. Because you weren't were you not happy with it? Wasn't as happy with it, it just wasn't I wasn't feeling it. Right. It was good stuff, but it's not what I wanted to Right. Which I didn't really feel like it was me coming out, it was more of the other writer. Right. Which makes sense because I just kinda sat there in the beginning like uh and they were taking me towards the end, I was wanting to play. So how does it, like, I mean, I'm sure you haven't had much time to do any writing since this whole thing is, has happened, but, like, how, how does it basically work for you? Like, do the words come to you first? Do you, uh, guitar, do you... and then I throw a melody on top, and then I put lyrics to it. Basically how it works. Which part is the hardest, do you think? Um, I don't find any of it hard. It's like that for me. I don't write. Somebody can go, go write a song. That's what they do. Go, okay, you have four days in the studio. Go, I'll write like four songs. I can write a song a day. Like, I can do it really quickly. But if I'm writing, sorry, writing a lot all the time, then I, I might run out of what to say. Right. What to say. But How long did it take to write complicated? One day. Two, three hours. Maybe not even, maybe two hours. Wow. That's amazing. And I sang it three times in the booth, that's it. Three times all the way through. Alright, that brings us to the end of episode 6 of LSQ. Major thanks to Angel Olson for taking the time to sit with me and for being an awesome lady. And thanks to Christian Stavros for helping to set that up. Plus, of course, thanks to Avril Lavigne for the time she spent with me all those years ago. And thanks to you for listening to the LSQ podcast. Subscribe if you haven't done so already. And whenever you've got feedback, you can reach me on Twitter at JennyLSQ. I am making some stickers and pins that I'll be sending out to those of you who are interested in either wearing them yourself or being kind of like a little street team. You can reach me on uh, on email, as they say. <laughs> LSQpod at gmail.com is uh, how to do that. And, uh, yeah, the next episode, which comes out in a few weeks, will feature an interview with Death Cab for Cuties' Ben Gibbard, which is going to be an awesome one. Plus, a little farther down the line, you'll hear episodes with Jack Antonoff, Kristen Control, Danielle from Heim, and others. So I hope you all make it a habit of checking out LSQ every few weeks. And, yeah, thanks again for listening. That's about it for now. 